Hello and welcome back to RocketPod, the brand new podcast where we are deconstructing visionary stories, finding out how these awesome people have created their success and sharing these insights with you, our listeners at home. My name is Harry Damon and of course joined with me is producer Peter Haynes and co-host James Cuss. Now for today's episode, we are bringing on the mic Bob Ferguson, world-class professional event speaker and coach who has represented in three national speech championships. I think we better get this episode going. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Thanks, Harry. Good, good, good. So for audience out there, so I wanted to get Bob on. So Bob and I met back uh, about two years ago at the Ryman National Enterprise Challenge. And we got chatting at the beginning and he, he's just insights into the world of public speaking. First of all, as an engineer in spacecraft, but then also his overcoming anxieties and moving into the public speaking space. And I learned so much from him and he's been an awesome support to me over the last year and a half or so with helping me with my speeches, the structure, um, giving me some all sorts of amazing advice. And I really wanted to bring on him on today to share with the audience and the world what, what he knows. Um, so Bob, can you just start us off actually by going back and talking a little bit about your childhood, uh, a bit like what your upbringing was like, and were you always as confident as this as a child? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really strange. Actually, I was an, an army baby, so I was born in Germany. My dad was in the British forces in Germany, and I spent probably the first 10 years of my life shuffling backwards and forwards between England and Germany as his postings changed. Uh, and I used to follow him around and go to the local school. And then at 11, when I went to secondary school, I went to a boarding school in Shaftesbury. So as a child, I was always very self-confident. And, and strangely, and I think you'll find this quite characteristic of a lot of public speakers, I'm an introvert. And so it, it always suits me best to be insular and on my own and reading books. I love reading books. and. You know, most speakers will tell you that faced with the choice of going out to a party and meeting a group of people or sitting up with a book at home, they'll sit with a book at home uh, rather than go out to the party. And I, I think I was always confident in my own abilities. And I think that's a characteristic of introverts. They look inwards and they're always very confident in their own abilities in isolation. But I was less confident in a group and particularly as the groups got bigger. And, and you start to get dwarfed. And I, I'm, I'm not sure because I'm not a psychologist, but I sort of have a feeling that introverts feel they start to lose control as you get into bigger groups and that you're not in control. And I'm sure part of that is behind the fear of public speaking. So and, and that was just compounded when I went to boarding school, because at boarding school, you become very self-reliant and independent. And so I tended to stay away from largest groups. I was never one of a gang or, or one of a, a major group. I always tended to work in isolation. So my internal confidence was always good. I, I never had many doubts that I could do what I want. But uh, yeah, I used to find being in a group a challenge all the time. What was the emotional support of your parents? Like, did you, were you, did you have a, a real nurtured environment? Um, I know you kind of moved around a lot um, as a, I guess, army brat, you would call, you would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, th I think both my parents were loving and nurturing, but it is a very different relationship by definition when you're at boarding school. Uh, when I was uh, up, going up to 10, I think I had a, a, what I would call a normal childhood where I went to school during the day and I was at home in the evening and I saw my parents and, and everything was good. Uh, but when I went to boarding school, I used to just come home and see them at holidays. And, and so the support they can give you during the term time is very limited. And uh, so I think you just learn to deal with things on your own. You, you learn not to worry about uh, what they think as much and, and just plough your own furrow. So what age did you go to boarding school? Was It must have been 11, very young then. You know, 11 is still, I think, quite young. I know yeah, some people go much younger when they go to prep school and what have you. But I think you're quite emotionally immature to deal with the challenges of being on your own. But I guess you probably grow up quicker. Mm, but uh, I do think it removes you from relationships. Some people think that Boarding schools are like a boys club, you know, that it's all mates together. But that wasn't my experience, uh, that you have to fend for yourself 
you have to sort out your own life and, and deal with it and if you don't no one else is going to deal with it for you so okay so there's a time of reflection almost when you first went i mean i can imagine um you're kind of thrown into the deep end yeah yeah you 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 certainly feel you know after sort of week one you wonder what you're doing there uh and how this is all gonna pan out but certainly by the end i was quite happy to be there it wasn't a problem but i do think it produces a disconnect between you and your parents the relationship is not the same as if you're seeing them every evening uh, it's more like <laughs> your parents have to try and make major interventions because they've only got the holiday if they want to change any of your behavior they've only got the holidays to do that whereas for a, a child that's going to school every day they have the chance to nudge your behavior on a daily basis to try and direct you the way they want so I, I do think you end up with this different relationship but nevertheless as i say both my parents were very loving and uh, very supportive and very nurturing so uh, i think they just felt at the time that if they were going to trog around the world which i'd have preferred to be honest but if they were going <laughs> to trog around the world it was better for my schooling that i went to a boarding school really interesting so then following on from boarding school what happened next and um, so when I, I left school, and I think they were probably glad to see the back of me when I left, but uh, when I left, there was this wonderful organisation called the Youth Employment Office. And my father sort of suggested now that I wasn't at school, I should really look for a job. And the Youth Employment Office asked me what I, I like to do. And, uh, and I said, drawing drafts and charts and maps, which I'd done at school. And they said, oh, a draftsman would suit you. So they sent me for a couple of jobs uh, and then I, I got one of the jobs as an apprentice draftsman and it started off my whole career in engineering and and I think that's another lesson that you learn because when I was at school I was a pretty poor student uh, not, not that I was particularly thick or that may be true but, but uh, not because I was particularly thick but because I really wasn't interested in what they were doing, apart from the maths. But, and when I left school, uh, if I told them I was going to do an engineering degree, they'd have all died laughing, that are, you know, fallen over. But once I got into engineering and I found something that really interested me and stimulated me, the academic side just seemed to follow on as a natural progression. And, and as a surprise both to me and my parents, I think, you know, my exam marks and what have you shot up just because I was found, found something that was of major interest to me. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I think all children, and I notice it in children today, I think you have uh, youngsters have a far broader choice of what to yeah. do. And it's really hard to pick something. But until you find the thing that ignites something internal to you it's very hard to progress so once i got into engineering uh, i was away and i started off in civil engineering working with big civil engineering structures cooling towers and and things like that and then i might well actually i did two years of a, what my mother used to call a proper job and uh, that's where I was employed by somebody. And after two years, I'd sort of had enough of that luck. So I turned into contracting, which is just working freelance. And I used to go from job to job. And I absolutely loved that because what it meant was that you had this knowledge that you'd picked up at uh, Hatfield Poly, it was I went to, not a university in those days, good old Hatfield Polytechnic. And you picked up all this knowledge, but using it in different environments is a real challenge. So I went from heavy civils into oil and gas, and I spent a couple of years there. And then I went into avionics with the Nimrod project, the big government Nimrod project. And then I went on to airframes uh, with marshals. And then I went into British Aerospace Dynamics, as it was in those days, and they had a whole range of products. And, and that was just like boys' toys for me. Uh, we worked on propellers yeah. and undercarriages, air-to-air -air weapons. Uh, it was just this whole 
wide variety of products and all of them were underpinned by the same knowledge but you had to use it differently so you had to work out all the time when you were dropped into a position how you were going to use your knowledge to the advantage of the business you were in uh, and that was a real challenge and i absolutely loved that and in those days contracts were very short really if you got a, a three-month one it was normal if you got a six-month one it was good if you got a nine-month one you were in heaven uh, and so every six to nine months i'd be changing jobs and moving to a different company to do different work so i just found that wonderful a wonderful use of your skills you weren't in a rut you weren't just developing one way to use your skills and that's brilliant i think that um the, the fact that you've also during school you may have not you didn't find your passion in school but then you found engineering and actually found something that you loved and that's where you really started getting into it you really started enjoying what you were doing i think that's super interesting so tell me so how did you transition from engineering to the public speaking world so i guess as an engineer i think you mentioned before that you had to do some presentations so go on tell us a bit about that well i i um i can remember uh, when I was in uh, Dynamics, it was that we used to have meetings with the MOD, and I think they gave a good free lunch because whenever the MOD turned up, there was always two rings of people round the table. There was the ring at the front who were leaning on the table, and then there was a row behind. And as I used to wander past the room where they were having the meeting in the afternoon, I noticed that all the people in the second row were all asleep. Uh, and they clearly just turned up for the lunch and they were just snoozing in the afternoon and 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 people were doing presentations with viewfoils in those days and it was just switching everyone off and and I personally detested public speaking uh, I, I mean I I can still remember doing my final year project at Hatfield Poly and having to do the presentation and the words going round in my head all during the night before and, and trying to remember them. And I think if you'd, if you'd have been there, you'd have been as convinced as everyone else that the words to my talk were written on the back wall because that's where my focus was for the entire time, mm -hmm. like a rabbit in the headlights. And, and I absolutely detested it and I avoided it at uh, every possibility. And then I did my MBA with the Open University. So you go away on these summer schools and we had to do a project and there had to be a presentation at the end. And a woman who was in our group, who was in sales, interestingly, James, so she'd obviously picked up her gift of the gab there. And she said, oh, I do presentations all the time. I'll do them. So we all said, well, yeah, fine, you get on with it. And we all sat there and she did the presentation and, the, and then we got a real rollicking from the lecturer who said, why is one person doing the presentation? You should all be doing it. And if you can't do it, this is going to limit your career. And I think that had a, a big impact on me because I saw all the poor presentations in engineering and I thought, yeah, he's, he's right. You know, the, uh, the people who can present confidently and speak well uh are the ones who go far because they're able to communicate their ideas they're able to get their message over they're able to pitch for money for funding uh, and that's where the success is so i sort of decided then that i really ought to do something about it but how i started was a complete bit of happenstance because a good friend of mine was coming round for dinner and he rang me up and said i'm sorry i've double booked I promised this bloke I'd go to an organization called Toastmasters. And he said, I've put him off twice. And he said, I really have to go this time. So I'm sorry. So I said, and I don't know why I said it at the time, but I said to him, why don't you come around early for dinner and then we'll both go together. And, and, and that was sort of the, the start. And I went round to see the, the Toastmasters Club and it's, it's one of a couple, I think, in this country. There's Toastmasters and there's the Association of Speakers Clubs. And they're both organisations that provide a supportive environment for you to go and try your public speaking and build your confidence and grow. And that. so we went off, off there and after the first night it was sort of compulsory to join. So we joined 
and very shortly I found myself in the in the process of learning to speak in public. Fantastic. It's sunny, isn't it? Serendipity and all that. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that in my life. You know, I'd like to say it was all going to a well well planned out uh, scheme, but I'm afraid that's not the case. It's really interesting. So, I mean, just listening to you talk, a um, couple of observations. Um, so you had... Growing up, obviously, you had loving parents. Um, you got to travel a bit, you know, away, you know, out of England and spend a bit of time in Germany. So you had that um, kind of emotional support. You then moved to boarding school, which sounds like it was a challenging time for you because, um, you know, you made the move away from your parents. Um, you had to stand on your own two feet pretty quickly um, and, and, and kind of built that resilience and that independence. Um, whether you were comfortable in that environment, I mean, obviously, you, you clearly made it work. Um, and then moving into, you know, when you first got that spark of interest with the engineering, the drafting, um, you obviously, um, you mentioned that you're an introvert um, and finding something that you, you enjoyed that, you know, you know, you were able to bring that structured thinking to something. Um, and then the fact that you, you mentioned something that I think is really key for our listeners, it did, you know, to be adaptable is really, is really critical. And I think... Um, the young folks out there, in fact, any, anyone out there, I mean, certainly in, the, in the, um, the, the post-COVID world or the COVID world that we're in, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. So, um, you know, to work with that certainty um, and to be able to adapt to a changing environment. And then obviously the Toastmasters um, example that you've just given, you, you had an opportunity, you, you, you went with it, you went with the flow. Um, and, and, and that was, it sounds like um, that's been a, another key part of your I, I guess it's part of your life's journey. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, um, as far as your, your, you know, your, your journey as a, as a public speaker, is there any, um, do you have any stories that you can kind of share with our listeners as far as whether it's you personally or whether it's someone that you've coached, um, you know, like a, the bigger, you know, anything interesting that you can kind of pull out from your, your experience in public speaking um, that um, we might we might enjoy hearing about. Yeah, it's a shame you've only got an hour, really, James. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I can I can tell you that when I started, I was just as terrified as everyone else when it comes to public speaking. That's a really common feeling, and and I can remember to this day the first speech I gave at Toastmasters, and I'd already been to the toilet twice, and. Uh, and between each speech, there's a minute where people get to write down their comments and observations. And seriously, it was still going through my mind in that minute if there was time for one more visit to the toilet. Uh, and that's how pent up I was about giving that first speech. And I think lots of people get like that. So the real truth is that confidence in front of an audience comes from standing in front of audiences. You know, I, most of my work is about helping people structure their thoughts, getting coherent presentations, delivering technical content that's got clarity. But the only reason you get confident is because you do it and it, you understand in the end all the fears that you have when you begin that you're going to dry up, you're going to forget your words, uh, the audience are going to laugh at you. Whatever your fears are, you find that they're not true when you start to do it and even though that sometimes you can dry you can dry in a speech you know I've always got strategies I've always got things in my head in case I lose my track somewhere where I can jump as a, a default but you find the audience don't laugh at you the audience are on your side and I think the important shift that you get when you become confident the important shift in mindset that you get is that when you're a nervous apprehensive uh, starting speaker you're worried about you it's all about you you're worried about you and how you, you they're going to react to you are they going to laugh at you but as you become confident and you start to work with people and you start to speak in front of bigger audiences then you realize it's all about them what you're there for is to add value to your audience's life and if you're adding value to the audience's life they don't care so much what you're doing you know if you're providing a, a solution to their problem removing their pain why would they worry if you forget your words i always have words in my pocket or if i've got a, a music stand or something on the stage i always have some words down there not 
uh, verbatim, but I have mind maps. I draw little mind maps of my speech so that if some halfway through, I forget what's coming out next, I just walk over, have a quick look and move on. It's not, not something to worry about. And I think doing it on a regular basis removes that feeling that you have to start at the beginning and you have to go through one after another and everything has to be perfect before it comes out to the end and you mustn't forget anything. Uh, and I forget things as I go through. The audience never know. If you don't tell them you've forgotten something, they'll never know. So you, you just plough on. And that's what standing in front of an audience does for you. So with Toastmasters, uh, I found that probably within six months of doing my talks on a regular basis, and starting to use it outside, doing it for different things outside, you suddenly realise that actually this is not the big deal breaker you thought it was. And if it goes wrong on the day, you just laugh and shrug your shoulders. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk Back to the podcast. You mentioned that it's about the audience. That's really, that's a real, that's a gold nugget that is. Um, if it's about them and not about you, I think that it's that mindset of just having the right yeah, having the right mindset going into these things. And it reminds me, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Conscious Parent. And it's talking about parenting with ego versus meeting your child as they are. Um, and it's really kind of, it's been really, it's been a great book. It's been, it's challenged me with, you know, the way I parent of three daughters. Um, but it's almost like um, if you're approaching the audience as they are, you know, and you're in a position to add value to them and to educate them on whatever your expertise is, and it's a similar kind of thing, you know, if you're going into it with, you know, you project a certain expectation that you think things are going to go a certain way. And of course, you don't know whether the slide clicker is going to break or, you know, it's, um, it's almost like if you can be in the moment and not be kind of too ahead of yourself. Um, I don't know whether that makes any sense in my, in my mind, um, but it's, it's that starting off with that right mindset. What are you there for? You're there for them. You're there to educate them. You're there to add value. Um, and I think the other point you mentioned, uh, the fact that the audience is on your side, they want you to do well, they want you to, you know, um, be clear and articulate or whatever, then that's also a, it's almost, you're getting that support from the audience that, you know, you're just, you know, bringing that into your energy, aren't you? Um, you're taking the support that is, it's not, well, it's not, it's invisible, isn't it? But it's, it's there. That's really interesting. So I learned that lesson quite early in Toastmasters. I was, I've probably been in there about three years and I went to a Chamber of Commerce lunch, the chairman's lunch, a big event. And the speaker there came from the Bank of England. And he probably, certainly at the time, but almost since, was one of the worst technical speakers I'd come across. He umdenard. He did things that you'd highlight at Toastmasters and say, you know, you perhaps need to work on this. He was clearly nervous. I thought he was actually going to shuffle his cards. I thought, goodness knows how he's going to follow them. And he started off, and it was a weak start off. And I thought, this is not going to be a good session. But then he started to tell us a story. And, and stories are tremendously powerful in speaking. But he started to tell us a story of what happened behind closed doors at the Bank of England when it came to dealing with the economy. And, and the deeper he got into it, the more he explained what was happening and all the things you didn't understand. And as I came out, all I could hear around me was people saying, wasn't that fantastic? I never knew that happened. How on earth do they do this? 
and there wasn't a single person that I heard say he was a fairly poor speaker though because the audience had got good value from it the audience had got something they could really take away and the more value you give the more they can take away the less they're concerned about whether you're on the stage being Sir John Gilgood, you know, knocking it out the start with your performance. So stories are so key to actually getting across, well, what you're trying to say, really engaging the audience. Um, but I also th- think it's interesting what you said earlier about how well, the audience aren't there. They want you to do well. They're there to listen to you. They're not forced to be there. As such. They want you to do well. And like to them if you, well, if you messed up a few lines or forgot something. Um, okay. So, so Bob, so, you decided you wanted to make a change. You decided you wanted to get better at public speaking. You joined Toastmasters, but then you went on to, well, three national speech championships and represented the UK and Ireland in the world public speaking championships as well. So what, what drives you? What drives you to continue developing your skills? I, I thought about that one. I thought, because uh, it's not quite as straightforward. I have a, life, uh, a passion as a lifelong learner. I, I do it all the time. Uh, still even to this day and you can see the books behind me I, I go through yep. book after I love book. It. Uh, a lot of them are through my own interest they're in um, public speaking but they're different subjects as well and I just find I like to build a framework whenever I get a subject I like to build a framework of what excellence is what what the complete picture is and I don't deliberately set out necessarily to be excellent but once i understand what excellence is i start to pick the bits that i think are most relevant to me and i think as you pick the bits that are relevant to you they obviously impact on your life and with that impact comes purpose and i think it's the purpose that's the real driver so uh, again as you might have guessed from my earlier statements uh, going to the World Public Speaking Championships was never in my plan. It was never anything I set out to do. And uh, I started off, and, and a good, very good friend of mine, who's an international speaker already, a chap called Frank Furness, he was the one who encouraged me to go into the competitions. And I think competitions are the fastest accelerator of your progress in public speaking because no one wants to lose. You always push yourself harder for a competition. And I went in and I got moderate success to start with. And then I sort of hit my my natural wall. And, and I guess there's a lesson in here in goal setting as well. Because my goal setting was never to go to the world championship. So I was focused on, in fact, I was focused on the level beneath the UK and Ireland, which is called division. And, and I was focused on winning the division. And, and it took me five attempts. and. I can tell you it's quite funny when you talk to people and particularly if you've won a lot of competitions, they think that you win everything and it's, it's just not true. You'll find most of the people who win have a lot of defeats on the way and it's the defeats that make them and it's the defeats that push them harder. And you look at the people who win and you think, can I get to that standard? Uh, it would be great to be at that standard. So you push yourself. So I pushed myself to try and win the division contest. And on the fifth attempt, I won it, which took me to the national finals. And in my naivety, I thought, well, when I get to the national finals, the level will be another level higher. And then I'll have to go through the same process again to build up my skills to win the national finals. But I didn't. I won it on the first attempt. And then suddenly I found myself on a plane going to America to represent the the uk uh, in the world public speaking championships and that was a real learning experience for me because by the stage that i got there i was beginning to be regarded as a good speaker and i was obviously being successful and you get all the plaudits when you win a national championship and then when i got to america i found i was a mile behind the competition Uh, and so in one sense it was great to be there we had a fantastic time i went with my wife and we had a wonderful time in san antonio in texas mm-hmm. but i got knocked out of the competition in the semi-finals uh, i watched the finals the finals was uh, great 
But the disappointing thing for me was I was so far off the pace in the semi-finals. I didn't even get placed. You know, they, had, they placed the top three and there were eight contestants and I wasn't even in the top three. So I was just miles off the pace. And, and when I came back, that really disconnected me, I suppose, with public speaking. I sort of felt the wheels had come off a bit and I wondered what had happened and, and why this had all happened. But what I did do when I was there was I bought some CDs because you'll find you go to these convention, all the speakers are selling their CDs of uh, how to get better at speaking. So I bought some of these because clearly I needed them by that stage. And eventually, after a few months, I started to listen to these CDs and I suddenly realised as I was listening to the other speakers that the successful ones weren't the people who had created a successful speech, which is what I think I did. They were the people who had a system for success. They had a, a, a process so that every time you wrote a speech, you could write it to a standard. And mm. that suddenly registered with me. And I realized that, in fact, the true standard of success is not having a success. It's about being able to hit the same standard on a consistent basis because you've got that system ingrained in you that knows how to deal with this. And from then on, that was 2002. So I've spent now uh, getting close to 20 years working through, working out how I can refine this system so that, uh, and you'll see that often I'll get people ring me up in a panic. They've gone on a business trip and somebody said, oh, that's great. Would you say a few words at dinner? So they ring me up in a panic and say, oh, I've got to say a few words. And we talk about what they want to say. And I'll give them a structure to fit it in. And at the end of it, they go, that's brilliant. But they had all the information in the first place. The bit that was missing was the process to put it into something coherent and articulate and add a bit of humor if they want it. And that's the bit that people miss. It's learning that process. And most of my coaching work is about teaching people processes so that I may help them out in the first couple of speeches. But after that, they should be able to stand on their own two feet and write using a framework and a process to get all their ideas into a line. But the system that you're de de describing, is that something that it's a proprietary system that you've developed based on your experience? Or is this something that you you took the bones of a framework that was already in, in the world. Um, can you talk about your system and how, how, you, how you kind of refined it? Right, so like everyone else, I, I didn't invent public speaking. Uh, and you find that even if you're at a high level, you have to be coached. You need to find somebody. Uh, the person I found was the 1990 world champion, uh, Craig Valentine. and I went on his coaching course, actually. I was more interested in the coaching, but as the uh, part of that, I took on his process and then I learned that process. But because I'm so eclectic, I look at all these different coaches and I work out different systems and then I look at what will work in the applications that I want and I start to customize it according to what's needed for the uh, process. So you'll need say a different uh, framework, if you're gonna give a keynote speech on a big platform, you'll need a very different framework for that than if you're a technical person going to give a presentation to the board to get funding. They're two mm -hmm. different frameworks, two different approaches, two different styles. And so I've just eclectically picked up all this information and sorted it out into things that suit the different clients and the different situations they're in. That's really interesting. Well, I might, I might need your help. I, I've recently been introduced to the, uh, the producer of Shark Tank in the US when we take Flexi to the US. Um, and my business partner said to me, what about Dragon's Den in the UK? And we, we're not sure whether we want to pursue those, but um, you know, we're looking to get to a million users um, on the Flexi platform. So, um, that I mean, that scares the hell out of me to to get onto public television and to, and pitch my business. And again, it's for you know raising capital. Um, what kind of system would you use? I mean, it, could you describe what kind of system would work well for that um, environment? For all those listeners out there that want to do the same thing um, on Dragon's Den, I guess in the in the UK, 
yeah for sure uh, so remember I said it's all about the audience so you have to start by thinking of your audience so all the details of your business are all very nice but you're asking someone to give you a wedge of money and at the end of that they want to get back their wedge plus a bit more so this is about showing that your business has the legs uh, that it can go as a, a running business that it, the idea is clever enough that you can insulate it from other people just copying you and, and stealing the idea and diluting your market that the finances are sound enough that when they put their money in the money's going to and it's going to juice the board business and you when you're talking to people who are that sharply focused the key thing you've got is the questions and answers and question and answer is the sort of bit that people often stick at the end of a, a talk all right if there's any questions let's have them sort of thing but for that sort of audience question and answer are the key and i remember peter jones in the uh, dragon's den he ran a series called tycoon i don't know if you remember that's probably before your time but tycoon was rather like the apprentice but it was peter jones version and and the person who won at the end was going to get his investment and they were going to go on uh, to a, a great business partnership together. And one chap detested public speaking. And they had to give a presentation every week. Uh, but this chap detested it. So Peter sent him to Paul McKenna. Now, Paul McKenna's really good at what he does. He built this bloke's confidence to stand there and present. But in fact, it was a very poor use of a day for this chap. Because what happened was he stood up in front of Peter Jones and he delivered the presentation with confidence, as Paul McKenna had, had conditioned him to do. And then the first thing Peter did was start to drill down into the figures and the bloke fell apart. Mm -hmm. He'd have been better spending the day with people firing really tough questions at him. And then when He'd done the presentation. The presentation might have been average, but when Peter Jones asked him the questions, he'd have been on top of it, answering it. And, mm -hmm. and that's really, really important. When you go to talk to people with, in executive roles, people who often have very short attention spans and a lot on their mind, you need to structure your presentation like a newspaper article. So you have a big headline. This is the headline. This is what my product is going to do for you, the headline. Then your first bit is like an executive summary. These are the key, key points of my business. And then let them ask questions. Now, three things happen when you let them ask questions. Number one, all these character types, if you look up um, Jungian type character types, they all have a key word. And the, the executives, the driver type, their key word is always control. They love to be in control. And as soon as they're their control, so they love it now. They're comfortable with your presentation. You don't have to worry about anything else. Secondly, you don't have to worry about your timing any longer because when they've lost interest, they'll stop asking questions and your presentation finishes. And the third thing is you don't have to worry about making sure you've got relevant content in because they'll only ask you questions about the content that's relevant to them. So you now don't have to worry about your content. You don't have to worry about the timing and you don't have to worry about boring their pants off because they're in control. And that's a very different structure to the structure that you would use if you were on a big stage. Has that helped you? I'm going to see you on Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I'll be giving you a call before before then. <laughs> I like that. So, so Bob, you just mentioned about that's a, a different structure to what you do on a big stage. So, would you be able to just quickly go over that structure about? So, I guess completely different audience. But would you be able to just summarise that for us? Yeah, sure. I'm going to give you the structure that I learnt off Craig Valentine um, in the world class speaker coaching program. Uh, and it, I think it is a brilliant structure, which is why I don't mess with it. He uses the structure parts, P-A-R-T-S. The P is for a point or a phrase. And you need 
a key phrase that summarizes the chunk of your speech. I always recommend that people break their speeches into 10 minute blocks. And that's because that holds the audience's attention. If you watch a James Bond film, you'll see that they change what's happening every 10 minutes. You know, there's a bit of action, there's a bit of uh, the story, they introduce some characters, there's a love interest of Bond, then they're back to the action. And because they're changing it every 10 minutes, the audience's attention is pinging across the top all the time. The audience never has time to get bored. So I always write keynote speeches in 10 minute blocks. The P is for the point because we always remember phrases. You know, if you go back to Barack Obama, Barack Obama is, uh, yes, we can. Uh, if people remember nothing else, you'll ask people about Barack Obama, they'll say, yes, we can, because that was his key phrase. Trump choose made America great again. Uh, and it's this little pithy phrase that people will remember, and that's the bit that will stay in their mind. So really important to craft that. The A is for an anchor. Because if you have information to give to an audience, unless you anchor it, it will get lost. What's loose gets lost. That's another phrase for you. And the general anchors that we would use in a keynote speech is an anecdote, a story. Your story is key because it involves emotion. It will drag the audience emotionally into what you're saying. And remember, we make most of our decisions on emotion rather than logic. So you want an emotional connection with the audience. You want the audience to feel how you feel about the bit you're talking about. And what you show them is your wisdom. What did you learn from that story? Your experience, your wisdom. But the only time the transition or transition is complete is when that wisdom goes into their world. You want your wisdom into their world. So the R is for reflect. And in the reflective phase, you start to ask people questions. So if you've told a story about how you were broke and how you've learned a system that's helped you become profitable, after you've told the story, you'd say something like to the audience like, so how would that work in your business? What would you do if you had to try and use that system to make your business more profitable? So what they're doing now is they're thinking about your wisdom, but they're putting it in their world. They're putting it in their business. So now this is no longer your wisdom. This is now something they can do in their world. The T is for tip or technique. So I always like to give the audience a concrete tip or technique, something they can go and do straight after I've spoken that will help them achieve the results that we're talking about in whatever the speech is. The S is for sales. But don't ever think if you're giving a sales message, it should go at the end. That is a complete disaster. If you watch anyone who does that, what you'll see they'll do is they'll give, give, give. Let me give you lots of information. And then they'll get to the end and they'll say, let me tell you about my product that I'm selling today. And the atmosphere just swoops straight down into the ground and the whole audience switch off immediately. And that's a disaster for two reasons. You've turned them off what you're selling. And secondly, it's come at the end. So it's likely that that's the last thing they'll remember when they go out the door because it's come right at the end. I prefer the term marketing rather than selling, unless you're one of these people who sells from the stage, but most people are there to market their service. But you don't put it at the end. What you have to do is seed little comments as you go through that let people know what you offer. So if you replay this, uh, when you go back to do the editing, you'll find phrases like, when I'm coaching people, I do this, yes. When I'm speaking on a stage, I do this. And what the audience are hearing is, oh, he speaks on a stage. Oh, he does coaching. But you're not doing it as an overt selling technique. You're just reminding people that that's one of your skills and you're passing on a technique from that part of your life. And that comes at the last part. So when you've written the basis of it, you go back through and think, well, where is it appropriate 
to tell the audience of something that I do that will just remind them that this is a service I offer if they come to consider it later. So that's the part structure. And I recommend you use that for 10 minutes. And just to go back to the reflect and the anecdote, if I can, anecdotes generally get people excited. I know I've been uh, accused of being excited all the time, but anecdotes generally get people excited. They're the bits where you experience, you're relating your experience to the audience. If you're a speaker on stage, they're really easy to remember. You don't have to worry about remembering them because the stories just come back and you're expressing the emotion, what was happening at the time, and that tends to be higher paced and bigger energy. But you cannot keep an audience at that level for your whole speech. So then when you get into the reflect part, that's an opportunity for everyone to, oh, let's just breathe. Let's just relax. Let's reflect and see how this works in your life. And then you give them a little break so that they're now in contemplative mood, before you move on to your next story again. That's really interesting. So you can control the energy of the audience. We obviously, yeah, you can control when the timings of when you put in these different um, little pearls of wisdom or, I love the idea of you putting your wisdom into their minds, you know, how can you, how can you re relate that to them and, and then, you know, give them the opportunity to think about how they might do it and then they own it. Um, so you've got that engagement. Peter, you've been pretty quiet. Do you have any, I know, I know Peter generally has um, normally the best questions <laughs> in the whole thing, but do you have any questions uh, to ask Bob? Yeah, I do. It was, it was just, uh, so you say the best way to learn is obviously by doing, and that obviously that applies to whatever you're doing, woodworking, public speaking. Um, but do you have any resources that you would like to share? Any books, like videos, uh, YouTube channels, or anything you've kind of come across that you think our audience might be interested right, in? Right, okay. So, again, how long have we got? Uh, the, the resources are immense. So, firstly, for anyone who is considering wanting to improve in public speaking, I think there are two big organisations, Toastmasters International, which is worldwide, if you've got a worldwide audience and the Association of Speakers Club, which I think is based in the UK, both do a very similar thing. They both provide a supportive environment. They give you basic materials that you can start to learn how to structure. That will not take you all the way. You know, it will get you confident in front of your workplace audience. It will let you speak better at work. It'll let you speak better in front of groups. If you really want to push it, then you need to look at the people who are at the top of the world speaking. I mentioned Craig Valentine. He has a, a really good book, World Class Speaking, and it's just packed with tips. I learned so much as, as part of the course. I read it. I can't actually show it to you because it's on my Kindle. It's what I, I probably have about 20 books on my Kindle and about 200 on the shelves behind me. And that's that's what I haven't got in paper. But it gives you lots of great tips of how to develop these skills for sure go onto youtube and watch the inspirational um, speeches that you get on there and work out why they're inspirational so again if i can just give you a quick example if you talk about steve jobs people will say he's a tremendous speaker when i went to toastmasters the first thing they teach you is get out from behind the lectern don't stand behind the lectern try not to use notes unless necessary because it takes your eye contact away uh, and it drops your head down if you look at steve jobs famous speech which is the uh, commencement speech at stanford university on there you'll find he goes behind the lectern with a written set of notes and his eye contact is appalling why do people think that's a great speech because the content is built on three stories that are relevant to the audience and adding huge value to the step they're going to take in their life. So don't be hidebound by what you think you have to do when you're in front of the audience. The only thing you really have to do is add immense values. If you want to see how to use emotion in a story and how to change the audience's emotion very quickly, I'd recommend a speech by Rick Rigsby called uh, what I learned from a third grade cook and it's immense and if you watch that you'll see about seven minutes in it's 11 minutes 
you'll see he's got the audience rocking with laughter and he changes them in an instant. And I'm not going to tell you how he does it because I don't want to be a spoiler. You go and watch it because it will be the best 11 minutes of your life. I've seen it. Very good. I'm not going to give it away, but it was very, very good. I'd very much recommend it. And, and what's interesting is if you watch the bloke behind the speaker, who's obviously uh, at the top of the organisation, he's got a funny hat and a chain on, you know, he's very important in the university. And if you watch his eyes after the mood changes and watch his blink rate, and you can see how deeply Rigsby has affected him. Mm, interesting. I look forward to seeing that. I've never seen it. And, and if you go through YouTube, if you type in public speaking, uh, great speeches, watch Barack Obama. You know, he was just superb at it. And again, Barack Obama has a very different structure. I've taken the structure out of Barack Obama's speeches for people who want to connect with the hearts and how they do that. Uh, but he was just superb. Uh, he was a very good speechwriter in his own right, of course. So mm -hmm. that helped with the process yeah and youtube is a great source just to watch for short periods and the other thing i use youtube for is i i talked about building a framework to put my knowledge in as i go and quite often if i've got a, a book you can go particularly if it's a popular book you can go onto youtube and you'll find somebody's done a 10 minute summary of that book and i always start there you know, if I want to learn about something, I'd get, get a kid's encyclopedia because they give you the framework without the depth of knowledge. I, th I think it's really interesting that the, the different uh, systems for the different purposes, you know, or you, you know what, um, what are you looking to get out of the speech? I hadn't thought about that as far as it's not a wise, it's not a one size fits all. It's, you know, what are you trying to deliver um, and then figuring out the best format so you, you've got to have, you know, the, the, the discipline, I guess, to, to work at it. Um, you know, you've got to be pretty resilient. You've got to have the discipline and then you've got to find the right tools for the job. Um, and then almost, and I, I love the way you've deconstructed um, these different speeches and, and you've come up with the different tools that you, uh, you pull out of your, uh, your coaching bag, so to speak, and, and obviously um, implement yourself. But which it sounds like, and then this, then this lifelong learning point that you touched on I think is um is really inspiring um you know I mean the books behind you say it all <laughs> you've got one wall there I've got another one around the corner <laughs> and there's one on your kindle that we can't see <laughs> can I oh. add one other level of complexity as a sort of tip for people I'd love you to please uh, the the probably the real skill of communication is observation that's a combination of looking at people and listening to what they say not thinking about where, what next point you're going to get out. It's about listening to what they say and extending the conversation. And the reason is what worked today won't necessarily work tomorrow. So if you go and give a speech to an audience, you've got the audience at that time, they're in the situation they're in and you want to deliver your message. The next day, things might have changed for that audience. If you use exactly the same technique and the same speech, you'll find it doesn't work, it doesn't resonate. And so all the time as a speaker, it's great to think that you could construct these fantastic speeches and just run around wheeling them out all the time. But if you don't take the time to have a look at the audience you're speaking to and think what their needs are and have their needs changed if you spoke to them before, since you last spoke to them, then you'll find you're just trotting out stuff that doesn't work with them. So all the time, it's got to be active. You've got to be thinking about what you're saying, not just trogging out what's in your head. So coming back to your, your T at the end of the part structure, so you've just given us another awesome point for the audience, but can you bring it down to three final tips that they can start implementing and that will help them overcome that fear and improve their public speaking? Just three final tips for us. So I think you probably heard bits of these as we've gone through. My, my first tip would be stop focusing on yourself and start thinking of how do I add value to the audience? And let that be your driver. The things that are in your speech should not be for you, they should be for the audience. The second thing I'd suggest is look for places to practice. That may mean going to a Toastmasters club, if you're at work, if you're in a business, 
get a group of your colleagues together ask them if they'd mind sitting through your presentation and giving you some feedback because you'll get a couple of things you'll get some bright ideas from the people who listen but you'll build your own confidence in what you're going to say you're going to you'll start to understand your timing well and and it will start to feel like a natural part of you rather than you just repeating words and the third thing i'd encourage everyone to do is to collect the stories they have of their life because everyone has fantastic stories and you can use a story to illustrate several points you know one story doesn't just illustrate one point you can pick several out of it but these are all yours and they're all authentic so no one wants to hear you stand up and tell a story that everyone's read on the internet if you tell a story about your life it's authentic it's you it's the lessons you've learned and the audience will respond to that and take your wisdom on board so collect a list of course because i'm an engineer i have mine on a spreadsheet but i've got about 600 stories of things that have just happened to me very short things it doesn't have to be a long story but just little vignettes that i can use to illustrate things as i go through so those would be my top three tips great great three final points and some of those I think you've given me before and I've implemented them. I've got lists of stories to tell. Also, you took one of the stories and you pulled out multiple lessons and things from it that I hadn't even sort of considered. Um, brilliant. I guess one final question that we do like to ask, um, Bob, is if we could organise for you to have a coffee with anybody, um, who would you choose and why? I think it would have to be Elon Musk. I, I had other characters in my mind, but, you know, Elon Musk, uh, to me, is is the real amalgam of entrepreneurship and engineering because he's worked a lot on the engineering himself he understands the engineering but if you look back through history people like brunel and gustav eiffel when he built his tower the people who built the great structures of the past were not just engineers they were engineers who understood commerce and how you made engineering applicable to commerce. So they had both sides of the argument. And I think if you listen to Elon Musk, you'll see someone who's passionate about the engineering, he's passionate about achieving what he does through the technology, he's passionate about the progress of technology, but he understands that that technology in isolation is no good if you don't manage to take it to market and make it profitable so everyone can benefit from it. So I'd, I'd just love a coffee with him to hear his thoughts and, and how he's done it and what's going on in his mind. I should think it'd be long coffee if it was what's going on in his mind. Well, we can see what we can do about that. All right. <laughs> I'll wait for the call, Harry. Do you think uh, he is a good public speaker? From watching a lot of his keynotes, he's quite different if you were to compare him to kind of Steve Jobs, uh, who is... Like the, the, I guess an Apple in general, their presentations like flawless. There's never maybe things go wrong, but very small. But kind of when you look at the Tesla presentations, there's always some little thing going wrong, and it's a bit more kind of hit and miss. I, I refer you to my earlier examples. Really, the the key thing is that you offer value to the audience, and when he stands up to speak, he does. And I'll bet you, no one cares about the little things that go wrong and you'll find that in your own presentations if people have got good value and they go home happy no one cares if bits of it went wrong it's only if it becomes intrusive you know if all the power goes and everything's gone and you can't carry on that they remember it if they're just small glitches no one cares uh, richard branson i think at the beginning was not a fluent public speaker but he, he just loved engaging with people and giving them some purpose, something to go forward, something inspirational. Uh, people don't worry. So, uh, yeah, for sure, if you wanted to judge him on a scale of perfection of public speaking, he might not rank as highly as Steve Jobs. But I think you'll find in value he's every bit up there. Well, thank you, Bob, for joining us today. Um, so how can people find you coming to the s the sales the marketing at the end of that structure i know it's a, Tell you've, us. you've had that bit it's been dripped in as we've gone through <laughs> uh, but if anyone's got any questions if anyone listens to the podcast and they've got questions they're welcome to drop me an email it's bob at bobferguson.co.uk 
obviously the bobferguson.co.uk is my website if they want to go and have a look at that but they're, they're welcome to drop me an email great well we've, that's all we've got time for but thank you again bob you've been awesome Thank you all for listening to another episode of Rocket Pod. Join us next week for episode 11 as we sit down with Liz Beck, executive coach and NLP practitioner. And what NLP is quickly is neuro-linguistic programming and involves analysing strategies by successful individuals and implying them to reach a personal goal. It's going to be a very interesting episode. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor, Flexi. If you haven't downloaded it already, download it from the App Store to manage all your subscriptions from a single dashboard. That's flexyapp.uk. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.